So there are 16 verses at the end of Matthew 6 where Jesus addresses the issues that plague most of us when it comes to anxiety and worry and all the things that we deal with. We've been camping there for a few weeks in hopes that if you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're wondering how it all might fit together and is it even worth your energy or your time, that you might go to these verses, ponder them, read them, understand them, spend some time with them, and see if it doesn't begin to affect the level of peace or confidence or trust that someone, that someone we believe is God, looking out for you, taking care of you, and helping you find your way in this world. That's our hope. And there's a verse that we have not talked about at all in these few weeks, and we saved it for today so that you and I could put our heads around everything that Jesus has to say about this. Won't be long today. I, I, I sat out there for worship just so I would be as hot as you are right now. And I know I'm in the shade. I should probably preach over here just so I'll quit when my brain overheats, but I'm not going to do that because I've got shade, so I'm going to go back over here. <laughs> but we won't be long, but I want you to take these thoughts with you and maybe spend some time in Matthew 6 on your own. So the verse is right there on the card that you have there. It's a version maybe that you haven't seen before, maybe even read before, but I think it says it best. And so let's say it together. If you have the card handy, look at it. You can say it out loud, a little bit louder since we're out in this outdoor amphitheater. Let's start at the beginning. Seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. Then all your other needs will be met as well. And I would dare say that even if you follow Jesus for most of your life, there's at least a few moments in most weeks where you're not even sure that's true. And you might think, I don't even believe that. Now, you might not think that, but you feel that. And maybe even you live that way emotionally, practically, logically. That I'm not even sure that's true, that God will take care of all of my needs. Because I can list a few things that I think he overlooked this week. And if that's true for you, then the end of Matthew chapter 6, the last half of it, is so powerful. Now, when we read this verse, take a peek at it again. Seek first what? God's kingdom. If you've been around church a while, you know you've heard a lot about God's kingdom. And maybe you sang the song in church growing up, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of that. And so you might be familiar with the phrase or even the terminology but if somebody were to stop most of us and say, what in the world is God's kingdom? And I think we might think, well, it's heaven or it's, I don't know, we would be hard pressed to nail it down or understand it. And so I want you today to walk away with a very tangible and clear and simple understanding of what God's kingdom is. Jesus said a couple of things about God's kingdom that make it abundantly clear. When his ministry began, he said it this plainly, the kingdom of God is, you know what he said? at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And so what he's saying is, is that all the things you have heard about God's rule and his reign, how we might simply define a kingdom, they're happening here and they're happening now. And so that's true for me and you. The kingdom of God is here. You might not have known that. You probably couldn't tell when you read news this week that the kingdom of God is here. There might have been several occurrences in your life that made you question that, but it's true. The kingdom of God is here. And he also said to Pilate, right before he was crucified, my kingdom is not, anybody know? Of this world. That's right. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. And so when we put these two things together, we have an understanding, something about God's kingdom. It's here, 
And it's probably not because somebody else got elected. It's probably not a political kingdom. It's probably not based on a government. But it is here. Now, when you read the Gospels, whenever God's kingdom shows up in a setting, whether it's a setting like this, a place like your work, your home, your family, your relationships, when you're helping with one of our nonprofits, when you're engaged and volunteering for Wellspring, it doesn't matter. There is a couple things. There are two things that show up whenever God's kingdom is there. The first is love. Say love. The second is justice. Say justice. Now say love and justice. Say it again. One more time. For the people in the back. There you go. Love and justice. That means there's something astirring, and it's God at work. Love and justice. Now, love is pretty easily defined in Scripture, but we forget that it's not an emotion, and we'll talk about that. But justice is a little more slippery for us. For us, justice is usually punishment. But that's not the kind of justice that Jesus is describing. It's a very specific kind of justice. It's made clear in the words that he speaks about it, words that we don't use in our language because he was speaking Greek. But when he speaks these words about justice, he is describing a restorative justice for the people who are what we consider or what society or culture considers less than being seen, raised up, provided for, and taken care of. That's restorative justice. And that kind of justice is what Jesus does over and over and over again in his ministry. He stops by to see the woman at the well. He has a chat with her. He's not even supposed to talk with a woman. Second-class citizens in his culture, restorative justice. He shows up at the temple and he turns the tables over because the people who were trying to make money off of offerings for God were charging exorbitant exchange rates and keeping people out of the temple that were too poor to afford it. Restorative justice. I could give you a hundred other examples from the Gospels. When God's kingdom shows up, two things show up with it. They are, say it with me, love and justice. We've asked you through the series last week. We had all of the people in our church who were present and watching online to have a discussion about values around money. How many of you had a discussion about values around money? Let me see your hands. A whole bunch of you did. Some people went out to lunch and had it that day. A fight broke out. It was nasty. It was very disruptive in the restaurant. I'm kidding. I made that up. This is a, an important discussion because it helps you fetter out. What was I taught about money? Where, where's my anxiety come from? Do I believe that God is my provider? All of these things. One of the folks in our church, Carla Thielander, was leaving church. She hadn't even had the discussion yet, but she's at the door. We just had a quick chat, and she said, my parents taught me three things about money. I thought, this is going to be good. Because I know Carla, and she's a woman of God, a thoughtful, devoted person, and I thought, I, I want to know what her parents built into her from a very young age. She said, first, the tithe goes to God. Well, I think that's pretty good. I like that. I'm a pastor. I work at a church. I'm digging on that. That's good. The second thing she said, he, they taught us to work hard. Excellent money value. How many of you were taught to work hard growing up when it comes to money? Yep, good parents. And then the third thing she said is they taught us to trust God. And I thought those three things together spell for some pretty great financial perspectives. 
And then she stopped and then she looked and she said, but there was a moment when that trusting God was tested. And she told me a story. When Carl was 10 years old, they lived in Indiana and the doctor sat with the family and said, uh, you got to get this young girl out of Indiana and get her away from all these things that are growing here. It's bad for her. She had allergies, all sorts of reactions to it. So they moved from Indiana to Pennsylvania. Carla's dad, his name was Merrill Livesey, and Merrill was a meat cutter, and his dream was when he got to Pennsylvania was to open a butcher shop. He needed to save some money before he could do this, and so when he got to Pennsylvania and they established their new home, he decided that he would go to work for a local butcher, save up the money he needed, and eventually open his own butcher shop. So he got to work, new job, new manager, new place, new community, new people, didn't know anybody. This family has to make their way in, a new, in their move, of course, for the health of their daughter, and they are launching into brand new spheres and places. The manager had a little chat with Mr. Livesey the first day of the job, and he said, look, here's, here's what you need to do. You're going to be weighing meat for the customers, and while you're weighing meat, I just, they won't even notice it. The meat will be up on the scale. Just put your pinky down on the scale. And when you just press down a little bit, they'll be charged a little bit more. I mean, margins are tight. We need the money. Uh, that's what I need you to do. That's part of your job. We're going to overcharge the customer. And he heard that, and I'm sure he thought, what in the world have I got myself into? And he refused to do so. Said he would refuse to do so. They tested him out, waited a few days. After three days, he lost his job new community, unwilling to do that. In this moment, Carla, as a young 10-year-old, remembers the day that he lost his job. She said it was one of the few times that she remembers her parents being anxious and unsure about what the future was going to hold for all of them. And it wouldn't be but a few weeks later, Mr. Livesey used an old skill that he had previously acquired, and he began to work as a welder for a local company. God provided a job for him. And it wouldn't be long after that that he would take the money from that job and open his own butcher shop, which he ran for most of his life. God took care of him. But you can imagine the moment of conscience when he's in a new community around new people with a new boss, new place, new butcher shop, when he's being told, this is how it works around here. Just put your pinky on the scale, a little bit per customer. Of course, Carla said, well, he wouldn't do that. That's not who he is. Well, why wouldn't he do that, Carla? Well, it's wrong. You can't do that. But what Mr. Livesey also knew is that if he did do that, every day he would be facing his neighbors and his friends using the little money that they did have to buy dinner for that evening and he would be overcharging them. 10 cents, 20 cents at a time? Sure. Hard-earned money that did not belong to his employer. Who, by the way, had all of the power and all of the authority? How do we know that? He was out of a job in three days. That's what biblical justice looks like. It looks like a man that says, I'm called to love my neighbor. Nowhere in the Gospels does it say that I am supposed to cheat my neighbor for the benefit of my employer. So he made a decision, and he decided 
that he would put himself, the livelihood of his family at risk, even though it would end up costing him his employment that he moved from Indiana for. This is love and justice. And in that moment, I promise you, when Mr. Livesey found himself in a back office of a butcher shop and his employer said, hit the bricks, God's kingdom was present because he loved his neighbor and because he stood up for justice. Those who didn't have would have a little more because he wouldn't partake in their little scheme to pad the books. When love and justice shows up, it's because we've decided to see someone, know them, participate in their life, and express the kind of compassion that Jesus shows us in the Gospels. Our relationship with Wellspring began when Mary Lou Fenton and Paul Lassard struck up a conversation about the needs of Wellspring and their need to have an event. Together they began to devise and plan, and what was born out of that is what's known as Club 21. I mean, you've heard of Club 21 at Wellspring. You've heard about it? It's a gathering. It happens on Friday nights. I think it's always happened on Friday nights, hasn't it? One Friday night a month. And it's a place where Wellspring participants, the stars we call them, they can come together and have just a social time, no class, no program. It's a movie night. It's a dance. It's whatever gets planned, but it's a lot of fun. It went away during COVID, but it was recently restarted at Castle Oaks a few Friday, you know, I don't know how, two, three months ago, something like three months ago, they've had three events. I heard a story about one of the most recent nights at Club 21. One of the stars showed up, and when he showed up, he was dressed very sharply, very handsomely, and he did it, well, not because you were going to be there, because his, well, his girlfriend was going to be there. And he was pretty pumped about it, very excited. In fact, I don't know if you remember what it was like when you had a girlfriend, and some of you, you know, just have to use your imagination. But when this young star showed up, he knew what the evening was going to be like and what he would get to enjoy. We don't have to run to class. We don't have a teacher looking over our shoulders every moment. Chaperones, of course, but it's supposed to be a fun social night, and, and this star was pretty pumped about his night. To his surprise, when he got there, he found out she wasn't coming. And the disappointment, I mean, he had dressed up, combed his hair, he looked sharp. His disappointment, well, he found his, as we would say, his emotions were unregulated. And maybe you've felt that way before, too. That night, Scott and Debbie Bear were volunteering and helping at Club 21. Scott saw the situation unfolding and thought he should step in and begin to have a chat. Now, if you're not careful when you're around people who are much younger than you, you can see their problems as has, has been problems that you used to have that you never had any attention for now that, you know, they'll get over it. It's, it's brief. It's momentary. Scott took a very different approach with this young man, and he met him where he was and began talking to him first about, oh, maybe one of the many reasons why his special girl wasn't there, helped him find a place of understanding. And then when he began to calm down just a little bit, Scott said, let's go for a walk. And so they went for a walk. And as they walked, he calmed down even more. Scott had got his mind on some other things. And after some significant energy and Scott meeting him where his emotions were, this young man was ready to go back inside and had an incredible evening of fun with friends. Now that can sound like a, a small incident, 
that occurred that night at Club 21. But if you consider it a small incident, then it helps us to understand what it's like to be an adult with IDD. Adults with IDD, everywhere they go, they feel different than everyone else. You and I, who don't have IDD, we know that we're different than somebody else, but it's because we have blonde hair or brown hair, or we like to dress differently, or we have a piercing or anything like that. Usually it's things that we've chosen, or maybe some things that we've just come to accept about ourselves. Adults with IDD don't experience that. Sameness, which creates a feeling of belonging. And they need moments of belonging. Wellspring creates that. So does Club 21, moments when they are just one of the crew, just one of the people hanging out. This changes everything for adults with IDD. And when Wellspring creates a normalcy around that we are all different, everything changes for how they see themselves, how they see God, and how they see each other. It took some significant emotional creativity for Scott Vare to meet this young man where he was, to connect with him about what he was worried about and help him navigate his way through a very emotionally complex moment. But that is, well, it represents two characteristics of God's kingdom. Those two characteristics in that moment were, what were they? Love and justice. Restorative justice. I see you. I know what you're dealing with, and I'll meet you in the middle of it. And love. Love, if you're struggling with what that means, it's very clear. Paul makes it clear. He says that, well, love, if you don't know, is patient. It's kind. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not easily angered. Love is all of these things, and when we express it and we live this way, this is what God's kingdom means. Now, don't forget where we are. We're in the back half of Matthew chapter 6. That's the place where our anxieties, our worries, our fears about our future, our security, who is providing for us, all of these things sit and rest. And Jesus tells us that God has got you, that he will meet you where you are, that he will take care of you, that he is trustworthy, and that his kingdom comes. His kingdom comes with love and justice. Those were a few stories. I'm going to ask Scott Vare to share one more about our lives as a church and our connection to a small church in South Africa, one that has been transformed and changed by your generosity over the years. You're going to have a chance to give to World Orphans today, and we have a whole crew of World Orphans staff with us today. If you're a World Orphans crew, let me see your hands. Raise them up. They're getting ready for Yeah, clap for them if you don't mind. Scott, Aaron Boyd, and the whole crew, World Orphans team, they'll be on retreat this week. You can begin praying for them. Our hope is that you'll give generously today to the mission and the efforts of World Orphans. And our deeper hope is that you will bring wherever you are with whomever you find yourself connected to the aspects of God's kingdom. If you want to know that God is with you, bring to your families, your workplaces, your neighborhoods, every relationship you've got biblical love, and restorative justice. Hey, do me a favor. Welcome, Scott.
Good morning. So in the fall, right before the new year, um, we shared with you about Christian Life Center, and, and uh, we've been partnering with them for many years. And uh, they had a vision for a pilot project that they wanted to do, um, specifically targeting young teens that had dropped out of school and were working on the street. And um, they just had a, a, a genuine calling to care for um, these mostly young girls who had found themselves in a position that, uh, out of desperation, um, we wouldn't hope for uh, anyone, for sure. Um, and so we presented that to you, and uh, a number of people stepped up and offered to help uh, finance that uh, ministry, that pilot project. And we were able to fully fund that thing for the whole year. And um, so we're grateful for that, first of all. And so today I just wanted to give you a quick update on the first six months of that program. They started it in February, and... Uh, it's difficult, the, the challenge, as with any pilot project, some things go like you think they're going to, some things not so much. And uh, one of the challenges that they had is um, actually finding the teens to be in the program. Because you can't just go down to the street and uh, certain neighborhoods and gather them up and bring them back to the church. Um, it's a very delicate conversation that has to be handled very carefully. So they networked with uh, local police and counselors and government officials and pastors to get the word out and to try to draw people to the church for the first meeting. And they did all that, and the first meeting came around, and they had two girls show up. And so they, they, they were determined to go ahead, even with whatever uh, you know, the Lord had brought to their, to their door, and, and uh, they started that, that weekly program and sort of explained what their heart was and what they were trying to do. Those girls went out, and the next week when they came back, they brought 15 more girls with them. And so they settled on uh, 10 that they thought would be the best fit for their program. If you'll recall, they were going to teach these girls how to, to sew and uh, teach them a skill and try to get them an alternative to the, the work that they were doing on the streets. And they only had room for 10 um, in the program. And so they settled with 10. They met weekly. They came in. There was a heavy emphasis on discipleship and prayer. They were able to connect them with a local university where they were learning some basic IT skills, um, how to use Word, Excel, PowerPoint, be able to create an email address so they could create a resume, because uh, the goal was to get them uh, a job. Well, at the end of the first six months, they had been coming every week. Seven of those girls are now working full time at Stephen Clothing, um, creating shirts and pants and skirts. Um, they've got a new job and a new opportunity. And you can clap for that. One of the girls uh, uh, decided she was determined to finish secondary school, so she's back enrolled in school full time. And two other girls, um, dropped out of the program along the way. And I asked uh, Pastor Seva, what did, were you, what did you expect? What success did you expect? And he said, I really thought we'd be around 50 or 
And so an 80% um, success rate for them, seven working, one back in school, is tremendous. Now over the next six, six months, they'll continue to work with those girls, um, meeting with them regularly to encourage them, to mentor them, to disciple them, because they're making in a week what they used to make in a night. And so as tension builds and financial pressures build, it'll be important for that relationship for them to continue to um, know that they're loved and cared for and that they have alternatives. Um, they are about to start another group of girls um, on the first six months, so it's continuing to build. And so just hugely successful. And uh, they did ask us, I, I, told, I talked to Pastor Siva earlier this week, and I told him that I'd be sharing an update with you. And he asked for prayer. He said, specifically pray for the girls and that they would stick to it. These are girls that from 15 to 18 years old. He said, pray that they'll stick with it. Pray that we'll be able to connect with them and that they'll stick with them. Of the 10 girls that started, five had never been to church. Four of those girls are now going to a local church. Not Siva's church, but she doesn't care about that. They're going to a church. So super important. The other thing he asked for was prayer for safety for those girls and for his team. They're messing with somebody's business. And there's been tension. They've been using public transport. It's not been safe. Um, people that, would, that don't want to lose the... The work of these girls are at play. And so they're using their, their church transport to get them to and from the, the church and to work. So pray for their safety and uh, pray for the girls that they would stick with it. And uh, again, none of this would have been possible without you stepping up and making it possible. So we're grateful. As uh, Pastor Phil said, we're going to do a, a special offering today for World Orphans. And um, over the years, the support of this church has been amazing for World Orphans. And as Aaron is out, uh, comes out every year, and we do these tours, we do home events usually. And so, and someone will host us in their home and invite 20 or 30 people over, and it'll be an uh, intimate uh, night of worship. And uh, by the way, if you'd like to be on that calendar next time, you should see me, and I'd be glad to, to get you set up. Um, but they're super evenings, and uh, usually we're raising funds for some specific purpose. We usually do a concert at the church, and uh, that's always been super helpful for us as well. Um, but so we're doing that this morning instead. Most of you know that our funding model at World Orphans, we sort of have that classic missionary uh, model. Our U.S. staff, except for a few operational positions, raise all or at least a portion of their pay through friends and family. And while that model works here in the context of the US, it doesn't work for our international team, uh, our Guatemalan friends, our Ethiopian friends, our Haitian friends uh, that live um, overseas. Um, these are our uh, psychologists, our social workers, our teachers, our program administrators. These are the men and women that are in the trenches working closely with our church partners every day. And so since they can't raise their own support, we do it for them. 
And uh, that's what we'll be raising funds for today. So anything you give is going to go towards supporting those people. They're tremendous. None of what we do would be possible without them. So we're grateful. Um, we do have, uh, sometimes we're able to, to talk to some strategic donors who uh, really get behind these events and uh, offer to, to match donations. And we have one of those for today. So anything that you give today will be doubled. Um, so if you give 100, it's 200. If you give 10,000, it's 20,000. And uh, you get the picture. So um, for you strategic people, today's your day. Um, so thank you. Um, I think, oh yeah, he's up there. So, so thanks again for your support. And uh, my promise to you, as always, is whatever you give, uh, we promise to uh, use it with the utmost integrity to make it go as far as we possibly can and to steward it well. Thanks. <laughs>